Jy luister na ShopTalk, aangebied dier die mailkoetsee, onthou om aan te teken by ons klanklerkanaal, Castbox, Stitcher of iTunes, die die episode en ander is ook beskikbaar op ons webteiste by www.1gesin.com Soos wat die dienkie gesê, dit is hierdie ShopTalk en ek is die mailkoetsee, een van die aanbieders van hierdie reeks by Eensgesin. En ek sit hierdie vrijdagmiddag by een van die meest gaafste plekke op die, by die voetwalle van die Magaliesberg en het staan bekend as die Owl Rescue Center. Ek sien sêk as die Afrikaanse weergave is nie, maar hoekom moet daar wees? Ons noem het maar die Owl Rescue Center. En my gast vir hierdie podcast episode is Danel Marie, een van die eienaars van die Owl Rescue Center, wat een nie winstgevende organisatie is, of soos hulle sê in Engels, NPO, en sy was meer as gewillig en gaaf genoeg, so ons hier met hulle kan kom gesels oor die wonderlijke werk wat hulle doen as een nie winstgevende organisatie uh, met die konservatie en bewaring van uile specifiek. Nou, enige persoon wat my ken sal weet, ek is een uil fanaticus. Ek, ek vrek oor uile en uile speel een wonderlijke rol binnen in ons ekologie, een merkwaardige rol wat ons gaan mis as hulle nie meer daar is nie, so as een volg van nie winstgevende organisaties, soos die Owl Rescue Center, gaan ons die strijd tegen die uitwissing van eilspecies wen. Ek moet het net noem dat um, uh, ons gaan hierdie uh, opname in Engels doen, want um, my gast vandag is Engels sprekend, en dis natuurlijk nie een probleem vir ons eensgesind luisteraars nie. Ek moet net wel vir my eensgesind luisteraars sê, dat my rechte transvalse Afrikaanse accent gaan ook gehoor word, en ek hoop jy dat sit af nie, maar net soos wat een Scots en Ierse accent vlyend kan wees, hoop ek ook nou maar my transvalse Engelse accent is net so vlyend. En met die jylle story achter die rug, wil ek dan graag vir Danel Marie welkom het by eensgesind, Danel, bye, dankie, thanks very much for your uh, splendid hospitality and your willingness to talk to us here on this podcast about the wonderful work that you're doing here at the Owl Rescue Center. Well, thank you so much for coming all this way to to come and see us and to come and talk to us and to find out what we do and for that great introduction. Yeah, I, I think I would have probably been a Toastmaster in my previous life. Um, talking about the issue of traveling far, yeah, it wasn't too far. You know, here in the Northwest province, two hours drive is still close by. It's just a problem about the highways, which are so full of roadworks. And um, our listeners will f- maybe find this uh, funny, but I almost did not find the Owl Rescue Center because it's situated in such idyllic um, circumstances right at the foothills of the Michalisburg Mountains. And um, it's supposed to be like that because that's how the owls liked it. It's a secluded area and they exactly, are yeah. very private species. But before we get to the owls, which is my f- fascination for uh, picking this as a interviewer with an NPO for Shop Talk, tell us more about yourself. Who is Danelle Murray? Where does she come from? Wow, <laughs> that's such an open-ended question. Um, basically, um, I grew up in Johannesburg. I... Um, I'm I'm an author, I'm a conservationist, I'm a mom. Um I also like art. Yeah, I, I don't know what else to tell you about myself. So you're a Johannesburg girl, so which yes. means you grew up in a city. I, well, not city. I grew up in a plot. Okay. Um so a small holding um in a, a small little place called Ramsach. So, you know, I've always I've always loved the outdoors. So even though I've been in Joburg, it's it's I've always had the freedom of the outdoors. And is that where the fascinations of owls began? 
Yes, definitely. We had actually a breeding pair of barn owls on our plot, um, breeding in the water tower. Um, and I actually write a whole story about that in my book, um, about where my first introduction to owls came. And um, it was there when I was, when I was eight years old. Now, I wanted to keep this light actually for the later part of the, of the interview, but I can easily move it to in the front. Hmm. Your book, tell us about that, because I should have introduced you as author as well. I beg your pardon <laughs> for that. My coffee is only kicking in now. Um, but you are an author. You have published a, should we call it a memoir? That's correct. All right. Yes. And give us the title. I can't remember it. It's called My Dark Country. Okay. Um, so it, it basically, it tells the story both about um, my life, my, my family's life, um, Brennan and I, how we started Al Rescue Center. Um, but it incorporates a lot of, um, you know, unique um, sets of circumstances in South Africa being a conservationist. I know earlier when we chatted, I, I briefly mentioned to you about our history with, um, you know, being exposed to crime and things like that. So the, the title, My Dark Country, was actually a play on words with the fact that owls are nocturnal. So a lot of our work, a lot of our life is you know, done at night, based at night. Um, but then also I came to a, a part of my life where I started fearing nighttime, um, which was kind of a contradiction um, because of so many experiences that we went through. Um, you know, for example, at our previous, where the sanctuary was previously based, um, we had an armed robbery during one of the, the times when, when we did feeding at night. So that's where the title My Dark Country comes in. All right. And so it, it explains your childhood. Uh, growing up in Reimsig. That's right, yes. Uh, that's on your way to Krugersdorp. That's right. All right. And where did you matriculate? At uh, Monument. Monument, yes. all right. And after that, did you do any tertiary education or qualifications? I did. I, I did. Um, well, directly after school, I actually studied jewelry design. Okay. Um, which I know is now completely, you know, so diverse from what I'm doing at the moment. Um, but like I mentioned, I've always enjoyed art. And when I got to that stage in my life where um, my parents asked me, what do you want to do with your life? I said to my dad, I want to be an artist. And he said, there is no ways that he's paying for me to go and study to, to basically, you know, live on the breadline mm. my whole life. And he said, there's, there's, um, there's no market for artists in South Africa. And obviously, I, I didn't agree with him. Um, but then I went to the arts campus in, in Pretoria, and I thought, okay, well, what can I do that's going to satisfy him and satisfy me at the same time? And I found the department that deals with um, jewelry design and manufacturing. So I enrolled there, and I decided, well, then, you know, I can, I can still, you know, spend my days um, designing, creating, doing what I what I like to do, but keep my dad happy and tell him, okay, I can open a jewelry shop when I'm finished. Okay. Um, and you went for that. And I did, yeah. And I and I studied that for a while, but I think I was one of those uh, one of those um, people that there wasn't one thing that that I liked diversity in my life. You know, there wasn't one thing that that kept me kept me happy. Um, and I always wanted to go back to something in, in nature. So eventually it led me to, to what I'm doing now. Yeah. All right. So your husband, Brendan, right? Brendan Murray. That's right. He's not here with us. He's, he's out in the field. I mean, he's got his daily work to do. I mean, he's got his, uh, his tasks. But how did he come to the point of creating the Owl Rescue Center? Well, it was a decision that we, we made together. Um, he, as a young boy... 
um, already had a great, great interest in birds of prey especially. So um, from his childhood, his escape from, from life was basically sitting in the felt with his Robert's Bird Book and his binoculars, and he just studied birds. So from a very, very, very young age, he would study their behavior, their, their breeding behavior. Um, he would see what, what time of year they, they breed, what prey do they catch. And he used to sit and record this all as, as a young child. Um, and then he got involved and he helped out with rehabilitation. Um, I forget now the guy that he helped out. Um, but it's something that his whole life he had a passion for. And we came to a stage in our life um, after another yet another robbery um, where we lost everything, where our house were cleaned out. And we were both in, in regular you know, professional jobs. And we, we sat one day and we said, what are we doing all this for? You know, what are we working for and building up and, and saving up to buy things that just gets taken from you anyways? Why not do something that you're passionate about? And he said, well, he's always wanted to work with birds of prey. And he said, owls especially needs the most help because their numbers were plummeting. And they were most endangered, not that they're endangered, but endangered by people because they occur where people are. So they're more likely to end up in veterinary practice because they get hit on the roads. You know, they get secondary poisoning from rat poison. They fly into electric fences because they occur, we call them our urban raptors. They occur Mm. where people live. So they needed help. and, And that's how the organization came to be. So here at the rescue center, if an owl is injured, hmm. um, they bring it here to you where it can recuperate. Or am I um, not completely understanding the, the role of the rescue center? No, we do. You're completely correct. Um, the owls get either brought to us or we actually go out and do the rescue ourselves. Um, but then we work with vets who then does the basic, um, the immediate attention, whatever surgery is required. And then we do what you would, I suppose, call the nursing phase. We re- do the rehabilitation from there. So make sure that that bird then heals up. Um, and then once it's healed, it goes into a, a flight aviary to get prepared for their release again. And when they're ready, they get released back into the wild. And you're not only looking at one specific owl species. I believe there are 15 in South Africa. 12. 12. (laughs) (laughs) Might have counted one or two twice. (laughs) We've got 12 different owl species. That's correct. From the smallest one being the African scops owl until the largest one being a feroce eagle owl. Well... No. <laughs> no, am I more The rose is Africa, but not South Africa. Are, okay. are you referring to African owls now in general uh, or well, South Africa? Mostly what we get here locally, okay. the South African ones. Okay. The the smallest, um, there's also a debate on whether it's the scops or whether it's the pull-spotted owl. Okay. Um, it, it, I suppose it just depends on some bird books say it's the pull-spotted, some say it's the scops. In my in my experience, it's the pull-spotted owl. is smaller than, than the scops that we've got in. But every one would be different. So it just depends which one was measured or weighed at that specific time when they captured the data, you know, mm. what what sample group they used. Um, the biggest is the Varuk's owl, the giant eagle owl. Oh, is that how you pronounce it, Varuk's? Yes. Oh, I said Varuk's. I thought uh. it was a French surname, so I thought the last <laughs> part is silent. Varuk's, okay. Um, the one with the kind of pinkish color above its, its That's eyes. That's right, right. Yes, it's yes. a dark, very dark iris. Yeah, it was previously known as a milky owl. Milky yeah, owl. Yeah, so okay. it's the grayish color. It's, it's got very, actually, very interesting coloration. Yeah. And so you can be able to cater for any one of those species, all 12 of them, if they are injured and they're here at their rescue center. Yes, we can. Okay. Um, 
we can, although not all of them would occur in our specific area. Of so course, yeah. um, our releases won't then for specific species won't be done. Yeah, we'll do it where where they come from their natural habitat. For example, if you've got a pals fishing hour, I suppose you'll only be able to do that in the marshy areas of Tonga land or in yes, exactly where yes. they where they occur. Where they all occur, right. yeah. All right, so you, you're working with vets. All right, so you're not a veterinarian yourself. No. All right. No. I almost didn't, didn't get that word well off my tongue. Okay, a vet, as we just uh, w- one word referred to. Um, but you are the middleman between vet and public when it comes to our con- conservation. I suppose you can say that. Okay. Because um, I'm trying to put it into a business sort of perspective, which is the series which is Well, not necessarily middleman, but like I mentioned earlier, we would be the nursing system. Ah. Basically, the vet would do the operation and do what is necessary. But after that, there's obviously a lot of care that needs to be taken um, for the healing process of that ulna. So if you've done an operation, after that operation, like for example, if you went to a hospital and you mm. got an operation, afterwards you would need antibiotics. Your mm. your bandage just needs to be changed, you know. And we take over that part. Okay. Basically, the hospitalization part of the process. All right, so it's like over. an owl hospital, yeah, the Machalisberg Mountains. That's All that's right. probably the best way to describe it. So look at it. it. Yes. It's like the man on the street can see it in that way. Yes. And all right, um, I'm getting the idea that it was Brendan's fascination of owls. Yes. That place the emphasis on it being owls instead of eagles or falcons or kestrels like i mentioned he no he, he loves all birds of prey and his knowledge on on all of them are very very um comprehensive but owls needed more help oh, you I don't see. you don't often get an eagle into although you do not as often as it's not as a often casualty as what owls are mm. they needed the most help so we thought focus on owls because if you open up to a broad spectrum of a species um, of species, you you could never attain the knowledge that you would need um, to do the work that we do. For example, we us specialising in owls, we know exactly how to release them, how to post monitor, and how to do that release for them to have the best chances of success afterwards. Um, not all raptors, not all birds of prey would would necessarily follow that same. Um, strategy or that same process so we could zone in on on one species of birds and say okay well we know as much as possible as what we can we're specialists in in what we do okay and is this an easy job i know that's a very stupid question but, <laughs> but i mean if you're working with a domesticated animal the hospitalization of such an animal can be easier than something that's wild Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, because of obviously the natural handling handling of the bird, um, because it's a wild animal, you also have to be careful of your implantation as a human onto that bird. Because you know, if you imp- if you work with a dog or a cat, giving it attention is is brilliant. Um, with caring for an owl, you have to be very very careful that you don't imprint on that bird so that that bird can after your treatment, still be released into the wild and be able to adapt again and, and carry on with its normal existence. You know, not to not to change anything in its in its nature. So how do you make sure that this animal remains wild? Do you still allow it to hunt while being in the hospitalization phase or um, do you still need to feed it by your own hand? Because um, if, if, if it gets so much attention from humans, then it will mm. later become tamed. 
Exactly, yes. So how do you keep that balance? Well, that's why our interaction with the owls is at an absolute minimum. Um, it's only done for specific treatment or when absolutely necessary for feeding. To give an example, when we get in baby owls, you, you have to hand feed under a certain age. They, they won't eat the food by themselves. So you have to, we feed with tweezers, you have to feed them every three hours. So there is that interaction. But as soon as that owl can eat by himself, you break that contact. Mm. When you just place the food inside and you allow it to eat by itself. And as soon as it can then, um, what we do, for example, with the baby barn owls, as soon as it can swallow a whole chicken so that you don't have to break it up into smaller pieces anymore, when it can swallow its food whole, wow. then you can break the, the contact completely. So then we put them into... Um, and you'll still see at the sanctuary, we'll, we'll, I'll show you later tonight, how we do the release of the barn owls. They actually go into an open alas. So it's the normal alas that people would install in their gardens that we use for a release. And you put the babies inside. So now you've broken that contact with the babies and you put, you, you put food inside without them seeing who's putting the food inside. And they, you basically take them back to a natural process like the parents would raise them um, with but but supporting them in the process so you break all contact with them talking about um visiting the sanctuary mm. um before we started this interview you explained to me that the our rescue center is not a zoo it's not a zoological garden where you can um bring the family and walk from the one cage to the next which you might find in Pretoria and Johannesburg mm. it's a sanctuary which means it you can still visit it but you can't get close to the owls, or um, how would one explain that to possible interested visitors? Well, like we've just explained now, is your human interaction with these animals have to be limited okay. um, to keep them wild, but also to reduce stress to them. So when you take a wild animal and you put him in an enclosed area like a aviary, um, and people walk up to it, that owl can't fly away when it when it gets scared. Well, it can't. It can only fly a certain distance. Um, so you're causing stress to the owl. It might fly into the sides of the of the enclosure. So that all needs to be taken into consideration. That's why we only allow visits during the night. When you can come to, uh, you just have to obviously make an appointment with us. But you can come at night and come and sit and watch them in a natural environment where you cause no disturbance. The owls will come in. They will feed on the feeding platforms. But when they feel at any point threatened or not comfortable with your presence, they can fly off and they can fly as far as what they want to where they feel comfortable. Um, so you're not you're not imprinting on them. You're not you're not imposing on them you're allowing them to just act naturally in their natural environment so that's the difference between you know um, visiting the, them during the day in enclosures or just taking a walk in the sanctuary and just being part of their environment which we are you know in any case owls do occur where people occur they in our in our neighborhoods, they they where we are naturally. So that would be the same thing, except that obviously there's a big concentration of owls um, in our sanctuary because this is where we do releases and we support feed them. So they stay here for a couple of months afterwards um, while we help them to, to adapt back into the wild by support feeding them, putting food out on the platforms um, so that when they struggle to find their own food, they know that they can come in and feed where, where we place the food for them. Now, and, um, owls, do they have a memory of those who once cared for them? Um, like an elephant will, will remember mm. a person even decades <laughs> later. Do you, have you maybe 
found any data that because you have nurtured and, and cared for a, a injured owl that they come back to the sanctuary because they know he has food and they know you are here or um, does the owl sort of existence don't include that kind of uh, interaction or action afterwards after they've they've been yeah. cured? Um, okay, well, I'll explain that in two ways. The first I suppose you need to understand how we do the release. We do what we call classic, well, what is known in psychology as classical conditioning. So when we do feed them at night, we we use a whistle, um, and they then get used to the fact that when they hear that sound, there's availability of food. So they definitely have that ability to learn that the sound is associated with food. So that when we release them and we put food on these platforms, we do the same whistle as done at the same time of night. And when they're out, they can be, you know, kilometers away they're going to they're going to hear the sound and they're going to know oh yes there, there's food I'm, I'm not finding anything let me go to where the sound is so that's there's how good food. the hearing is kilometers away their the hearing is superb yes okay. it's, it's 10 times better than what you can hear all right yeah. okay so it's classical conditioning with the use of like pavlov's dog in a way exactly that's okay. that's exactly what it is so instead of them then um identifying food with us as humans, we rather let them identify the food with a sound okay. because there's no implication afterwards. You know, we don't want them to, to associate food with people because when they then fly off, you know, they might go to the, the next person that they see for food and that might just be the wrong people's hand that, that they ah. land up in. But then an interesting case was um, when Brenda and I, um, years ago when, when the center was still new and it was basically just the two of us running it at the time, um, we we got so overwhelmed by how many owls were coming in that our kids actually joined in and helped us by feeding. So Brendan and I would change bandages and, and give antibiotics and things like that and the kids would feed the babies because that was easy enough for them, you know, easy enough task to handle. So Spencer was five at the time, and he would sit and he would feed the baby owls that came in. And there was two spotted eagle owls in particular that was, um, people stole them out of their nest when they were young and then realized they were so much work, you know, they, they couldn't take care of them. And they landed up with us. And Spencer continued, you know, feeding them and raising them. And then we did the release and, you know, they, they went off and during the day they were somewhere in the trees. We were on the Yekska River. Um, we had a, a river frontage. The, the farm was basically, the whole farm was um, almost, you know, circled by, by the river. Um, and during the day you wouldn't see them at all. But at night time, there was a certain time at night that they would come back and visit the kids specifically. And they would actually come into our house and you know, come into the the kitchen and then run through to where the kids were playing and they would come and like interact with the kids and play with them. And if, if the doors were closed and the windows were closed, they would come and they would knock on the window <laughs> until until you opened up and then they would come inside and they would sit and watch TV with the kids or they would interact until they got to a certain maturity level and then, um, you know, they paired up with, with other owls and then eventually they, so they didn't imprint, but they did definitely remember that connection that they had with them. Um, and yeah, I've got plenty of pictures where they would come back if the kids are outside in the garden, they would come and they would just land on them and, you know, wow. yeah, okay. come and visit. And all right. So there is a possibility 
that that can happen with every owl that you care for. They they imprint that kind of. Well, um, obviously now, years later, uh, we realize that it's you know to try and stay away from that. So that's why I say we're very very careful with our procedure now, not to not to have any um, long term effect on that owl, and that's why we use the the whistle technique and all that and our staff has got limited limited interaction with them like I always you know our new interns I say you feed and then you know you move away you you There's don't no cuddly, good, good nothing kind of like that nothing you know, like that you no you don't pet it you don't no, give no. it a name it's it, because um, it's just going to make it impossible then for the animal to be released Mm. But there's a lot of mythology about owls. Yes. I'm not talking only about Western Europe. I mean, the, the Greeks obviously thought of it as an as a animal of intelligence. Yes. Um, Athena having wise, an owl. Yeah. Yeah, it's a wise yeah. old owl. Yeah, I think the Germanic tribes had the same thing. And for one other reason, the French had the idea that um, the owls can also be associated with foolishness. I don't know. That's probably just the French okay. that can figure that out. I don't know why. Because there's, 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 there's a... Um, kind of a an art piece. I don't know exactly by who. I think it's by Goya that says that the sleep of reason brings upon monsters. That's the the name of the art piece. Okay. And then it's a picture of a gentleman that's uh, collapsed over his desk, and above him is bats and owls, which is the symbols of you know the darkness of, yes. of life, including foolishness. Um, or maybe not, they know therefore not the French, the Spanish then. So I beg your pardon. But in Africa. Owls are not seen as being wise. They're seen as the messengers of doom. Yes. And hence, many of uh, South African villages would discourage animals of, of animals, sorry, discourage owls, owls yes. as yes. the animals to, to uh, settle close by because they believe that when the owl sits on your house, it's bringing, it's calling death towards your household. Yes. That's actually in the Afrikaans culture the Afrikaans? as well. Oh, okay. Yes. I, I know that my grandmother, um, you know, used to tell me that story. Um, but I think in every culture, owls have played some role, whether it's good or bad. Like you say, there, there's always been something, you know, believed about about owls. But yes, in, in South Africa and a lot of cultures, it's a, a sign of, of you know, darkness, bad, bad omen. Um, witchcraft. It's very, very much associated with witchcraft. Last night, I received a call again from um, a gentleman that said, listen, um, you know, my niece discovered these owls at her work. And because of, they were from, he was from Kwakwa, and he said, because of the area, um, they're already starting to accuse each other of witchcraft. You know, wherever the owls are, that person is now associated as either you know being involved in witchcraft or there's some association with it so he said you know they're either going to hurt the owls or you know can we can we do something about it so in those cases obviously we have to react quite quite quickly to to make a plan to get the owls out of there um and then you know what what would you do if we can focus on that point you get a call last night in a kwakwa area there's owls around uh could be bubo species or taiko species. Um, taito, yeah. Yeah, taito, sorry. Yes. Um, so they don't discriminate between eagle owls or your barn owls. An owl's an owl. An owl's an owl. All right. Although the, the smaller species we don't really see any issues with, it's usually your barn owls and your spotted eagle owls. that. If my memory is accurate, if I recollect properly, uh, I think Owl feathers are usually used by traditional uh, doctors, uh, witch doctors, for their own spells and incantations. I don't know if my memory well, serves me right. Actually, a lot of the body parts are used. Oh, I see. Um, 
Yeah, we, we've done a few rescues from... Um, maybe I shouldn't say it's a lot. But we've done a few rescues from um, the multi markets. Mm. Brennan had a had a spy inside that would tell him if it's live owls, obviously. Yeah, of course. Um, she would inform us, and then we we would make a plan to get those owls out of there. So they they do use different body parts for different things. Um, I have heard from some people saying that the eyes, um, you know, bringing in that whole old wisdom because the eyes are so big they see everything and that (laughs) if you use the the eyes you're going to know things that you know you wouldn't have known before as if if the owl was like Odin's ravens yes yes no they definitely use it for power for superpower supernatural power you you get a call from very far away saying these owls are in danger they're actually being besieged yes Uh, what would you do as a rescue center to, to save them well, um, the, f- the first step is obviously to get the exact location. And then from there, we reach out to our network. We do work with other rehab centers. We work with volunteers. We work with whoever we can as a larger network to get to those owls as soon as possible. And if we can't find anybody, then our rescue land rover goes out and, ah, okay. and go and gets them. So, um, you know, we, we just ask whoever contacted us, obviously wants to rescue the owl. They, they want the best interest of the owl to just, like, try and keep them safe enough until we can get there. So no hours left behind. If there's No, no, right. no. We would drive wherever it takes to to we've even had um pilots flying for us, you know, if it was mm. too far. Um that did it for us. That that would fly there and go and fetch the owl and bring it back for us, yeah. You said something that's very fascinating, the urban raptors. All right, I can I can imagine that in the city centre of Johannesburg, the concrete jungle. You're not going to get an owl there, but you're going to get it in the suburbs surrounding Johannesburg. Yes. I saw them in Rudapur. I saw them in Brandburg. Yes. Um, so, but they, that's still urban. I mean, that's still a, a, a city. Yes, it's definitely considered urban, and yes. And they then have to share their prey with the local cats. Um, <laughs> so they have to, you know, be in competition there. But they, owls seem to me, for me to be besieged. I mean, they can either be become roadkill um, on our roads mm. or poison as you said I mean mm. um, someone will pu- uh, put out rat poison rat chow's poison rat dies owl sees easy mun lunch chow's that it, yes. and dies yes. so rat poison is an absolute no-no it should actually Absolutely. be removed from yes. the shelves it should be illegal it should be illegal um, I hope someone listens and starts because <laughs> I'm also against that mm. kind of um, well we call it pesticide don't we I mean That's a rat right, is, yes. a, is seen as vermin it's a pest yeah. Um so and, and then also electrical fences, I suppose, is a problem for ours yes. as well. Yes. And then you also have humans that are hunting them for what other reason? Well, persecution. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Persecution of or they for religious reasons. I mean, I, I don't know occult reasons. I won't call it religion, but I mean <laughs> occult. Um. So these owls. Wow, it's like being cornered in uh, by by several assailants mm, but that's exactly what what we realized when we started the organization and that's why our focus is on owls is because for that very reason now everything has a cost so let's talk funding for a while okay because your work is of great importance i can't recollect of any other specific rescue center in south africa southern africa the continent even the world that focuses on owls maybe because i'm not completely informed but (laughs) i've tried to look at several places they will look at different species but they won't look especially at something like owls or just eagles or just whatever Mm. um how do you keep this place running if i may ask about your benefactors because we spoke about this earlier 
being an NPO, it's it's like trying to run a business, trying to aim the, for the same thing as a business business would like to aim for success, but you're without not, the resources, without yeah. the resources and without any profit. That's but you're still right, delivering yes. a service. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to figure out how do you keep this place running if you would like to indulge in that. <laughs> well, I think that is probably the biggest, biggest challenge, you know, and it's it never stops because every day you have to obviously find ways to get funding to carry on what you're doing because your funds, your your um, expenses don't stop. And people always think that, that um, you know, as a charity, you must just get by. Somewhere funding just falls out of the sky and they don't realize that exactly like a business, you have to you have to generate that funding. Um, you talk about benefactors. We, we do get public support. I mean, the last while, I have to say, the public has been amazing um, supporting us in, in our initiatives. Um, but we don't get the big lumps of corporate funding, for example. I think that is, especially in South Africa, that is focused at social um, social charities and, and sports and things like that, not at animals. And I can understand that in South Africa with our social economic you know, situation that animals are always going to be last on the list. Um, even the lotto... Have, have pulled all funding for animal charities. They mm. they don't even look at animal charities anymore. So to get that kind of big funding that you want to achieve what you want is very, very difficult. So it's little bits, little bits, little bits that you get by on. Um, so we try and be as initiative, um, you know, as creative as what we can in, in fundraising. Um, and we do projects. We do we install the alhouses, and obviously people pay for that. Um, we do rat traps that people pay for. So we do different projects that that generate income. But um, like I said, that's one of our biggest challenges is finding that. All right, let's let's focus a bit on the projects. Um, the one that I picked up from your social media channel was that you have this plastic for our house project. That's right, yes. How does that fit in? How does that work? Do you melt the plastic to become an our house or we do, yes. Okay. Um okay, well how that came to be is basically we've always manufactured these products, um our houses, bat houses, beehives, but we used to make it out of wood. And then we decided there is so much because our passion um, definitely extends to conservation in general. So although our focus is, is ours and our special, speciality is ours, we we are concerned about conservation and um, you know the environment in a in a general aspect. So we decided how can we incorporate the two because you know you see so many programs about what's happening in the world with plastic waste, and South Africa there's so little effort being done to recycle to actually teach about recycling and, you know, to to um, reuse plastic waste. So we decided instead of using wood to make a product, let's investigate the idea of using plastic. And we did. So what we do is we the plastic gets chopped up and then it's, it goes into what we call an extruder, which is then melted and then pushed into molds. And then from those molds, we then manufacture the, the products that we've got. Now, do the owls mind that the houses are from plastic? No, or they do don't. they react to it similar than a one that would made they, out of wood? They react exactly, exactly the same. The owls just need a platform to lay their eggs on. They are they are not fussy at all. Um, you know, like a spotted eagle owl, if there's nowhere else to nest, 
they're not very clever when it comes to that. They call them wise, but when it comes to nesting, they're not wise at all. I can tell you this. <laughs> um, you know, they would they would have their eggs in the in the fork of a tree. Wow! But then all the eggs would just just drop to the floor and break. So and they will ask who <laughs> exactly. So um, the Allah's project obviously helps to you know the success rate of this goes up because now they actually find a more suitable platform to to have the egg and you know like i said they just need they just need a spot where they think is is a is a place where they can have the eggs so they're so, not fussy so when you've got these plastic owl houses installed uh, it can be on a wooden pole it can be in a tree yes owls will reuse that every season yes yes they breed um the, the pairs are territorial so they'll stay in the same area and they'll breed in the same allies year after year unless something happens to them um they will they will use it every year and i suspect that the design was made in such a way that there's enough ventilation and uh entrances on that for the for the owl oh yes yes absolutely the the design of it is very um carefully um designed according to the species breeding preference as well so you'll see we'll have um a specific design for spotted eagle owls and a specific design for barn owls based on what they prefer no you're not going to have this massive opening (laughs) for baroques and then you've got one for the small scops owls you've got specific ones for specific species that's right yes okay um and how does the clientele for that because i i I assume that um it is you you will install it as soon as someone pays for the installation that's right or do you have maybe a benefactor that says cover this area with enough our houses or is that just a dream in the pipeline so that would be nice we we've actually had it once or twice where somebody would say you know i'm gonna sponsor five schools to have an alas because of the education value of teaching the kids so we've had that but um yeah in most cases it's individuals that want to to have it in their garden you know the fascination with owls breeding in their garden so the sponsorship just has to cover the expenses the transport and installation and the manufacturing that's it there's nothing else that can come with such a sponsorship um well the the cost of the allies obviously covers all that but there is a cost worked in so that it covers some of the work that we do as well because when we go out and we do a rescue for example there's no cost involved there for the person calling us out to come and do it um yeah, but so, that's still non-profit. So I all mean, that is is carried through our project. Sure, I mean it's it's not going into your personal pockets. This is going into the rescue center. I mean, no, there's is... there's nothing going into our pockets. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and and, and um, but that still doesn't qualify as a charity. I mean, this is that's why it's called a national. Uh, that's why it's called a non-profit. Mm. It's not a charity. It's a non-profit. I mean, uh, I've never really understood the difference. But, oh, uh, but so you would call yourself a charity? I'm not sure. I suppose, yeah. I, I don't know. An is animal charity. An animal charity. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. I, I just made a difference that a charity seems to, um, not be. Oh, 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 let me let me rethink uh, my 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 thoughts here. You are actually grafting work for yourself. Oh yes. All right. Yes. Um, you you are willing to have competitions. Okay. Like the one you had with yes. the Ford Mustang. Yes. We'll get to that now. But you you you're you're creating a product that you that's able to be sold at any time. Yes. Um, oh, I understand. You're not just waiting for donations. Donations. Yeah. I understand. So, yes. Sorry, okay. It takes a little bit time <laughs> of a mind, but th- okay. Th- no, in that case, that's yeah. that's absolutely right. Yes, we. We run it like a business, like we've got a full-time job. It's just that we do it for passion and not for money. 
All right. Yeah, that's what I was going. And you've got staff. We've got staff. How yes. many are resorting under your um, leadership here? At the moment, we've got 14 permanent people staying on the property. That helps us. And what are the different responsibilities that they have? Okay, feeding obviously the owls. Yes. And putting out the prey for them to come and feed on. But anything else? Well, there's the, like I said, the rearing of the chicks. That's that's pajama drill. That's every three hours you get wow. up and you feed. <laughs> um, so we take turns doing that. Um, during barn owl breeding season, which is now, you know, last year we got in 100, 100 babies. So each staff member would have a few to feed every night. Wow. Um, oh, there's different, obviously... Like I mentioned before, you have to run it like a business. So you have to, there's the administration, there's answering emails, there's um, your media relations, there's social media, answering people, you know, getting information out there, education. Um, we we even get people from, from other countries asking us for help with a, a case in their country. And then we would, you know, um, from here basically guide them into how to do it, what to do, and and so forth. Because so, my thought process while looking at your social media, and we can get to that as well, mm. because you, you're approaching it quite in, a, in an interesting manner. This is a perfect resource for ornithological research. Yes. Have you had any requests from ornithology PhD students or MA students or just ornithologists worldwide that focuses on nocturnal birds of prey to come and spend time here? Nothing yet, but I think you just gave somebody an idea. <laughs> <laughs> because that, that is how a great deal of, 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 of zoological research yes. did happen in the past. Uh, for uh, the Gorilla Institute in Rwanda, yes. in the Congo, uh, because I can't remember her name now. Mm. Um Fossey, I think, was her surname. Yes. But but she started working on those primates. Was it Joanne? Joanne? Yeah. Uh, all that I know is Sigourney Weaver, yes. Weaver played her in a movie. Yes, yes, yes. I'm better with actresses. <laughs> um, mm. but, and, and I, and I, but I'm seeing the same potential in the rescue center here. Even for something as close by as Pretoria University, which is a stone's throw away, mm. um, because they have an ornithology uh, uh, department, department yes. there. Yes. Um, so you will be willing for something like that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the research side of things also fascinate me. Um, not that I've got any background in ornithology, but I do enjoy the research. So, you know, Brian and I both conduct our own. As, like, when we started the organization, we've grown a lot. And that's why I said the, the privilege of just working with owls as a species, you know, have um, opened that opportunity to, to be experts in it. So... You know, we definitely do our own research and recordings of their behavior, you know, things that is important for how we handle them and how we release them and how we treat them. And what's the idea of all the findings of that research? Publications, documentaries? I think it's definitely important to... to um, pass on knowledge definitely okay. definitely so um you know we we do work with other rehab centers very closely and there is actually a group of people that come together that said well we have to cross you know network uh, cross story. network our experiences and because you know what happens if um Bryn and i tomorrow you know a bus hits us we need to know that somebody else um, can do what we do and and that knowledge doesn't go to waste the, those years that we've put into and the efforts that we've put into um, carries on so that's why we've got we've got an intern 
um, internship, uh, intern project, where we take young people that, and it doesn't necessarily, they don't necessarily have to have the academic background, but at least a passion, if we can see passion, and then bring them in and give them that opportunity to work with us. And hopefully in one of them or in, in, in a few of them, it would spark an interest enough to one day have a generation that can take it over when we're done. That brings me to one comment I made as I arrived here. What do you call a fanatic of owls? A Tycho fanatic, a Bubo fanatic, <laughs> fanatic, Bubo fan yes. fanatic. I don't think there's a word in the English language at this moment that can explain someone that's crazy about owls. You I think we should one. create one, yes. <laughs> exactly. um, because I've, I, I've spoken to a couple of my peers, and my peers are here in the early 30s, and I've explained to them my fascination of owls. An, an, an animal that can see in the darkness, one that hunts very quietly, you don't hear it yes. flying. It's like Superman. Absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, there's a reason why it's my favorite animal. But I came to realize that they're also fascinated with, with an owl, maybe because it's such a hidden creature. Uh, yes. We don't know. Mysterious. Mysterious. <laughs> yeah. Mysterious is a much better uh, <laughs> describing word because we don't know a great deal about their behavior, or do we? Are they an aggressive species or are they just... They're not aggressive at all. But you're right. Um, many people don't know anything about their behavior. Um, and we get the strangest calls sometimes. <laughs> talk, talk to me about that. I like stories. I like gossip like that. What kind of calls have you received? Uh, the general thing is, you know, I've seen an owl in my garden and I've got a Jack Russell. Is it going to eat it? You know? Um, <laughs> So, so things like that. Yes, they they definitely Please because tell me you told them yes. <laughs> I eat the Jack Russell. <laughs> okay, but they scared about. I actually got a woman that got very aggressive with me over that very reason. I said, no, there is no ways that an owl that weighs maximum, you know, seven hundred and eighty. Um, no, sorry, four hundred and eighty grams can can catch a Jack Russell that that weighs three kilograms. You know, so. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, not even what the Faroque's hour is about six hundred fifty grams. Um, you should put your your no your no eagle no owls they yes yeah okay. um the. The giant eagle owl can weigh up to three kilograms, but you're not going to get them in in an urban area. Yeah, so I, they could they could very possibly. Out of the twelve, I've only there. spotted eight in the wild, and uh, this giant eagle owl also, that was now renamed, I think, in 2002, yeah. I believe, as Varuk's owl, uh, like the black um, eagle was yes, called yes, yes. Varuk's eagle. Who, you know, kudos to Varuk's, but I mean, yes. it really made us a little bit um, confused in 2002. But I've only spotted the giant eagle owl in a Kruger National Park one evening and it's a massive bird. Yes. I, I never imagined it to be so large because the closest where someone in the urban areas can see these animals is in a national uh, or a natural history museum. Now in Pretoria that was the old Transvaal Museum. It's now called oh, the right, yes. Museum of Natural History. Uh, the other examples are South African Museum in Cape Town, the National Museum in Bloemfontein. They all have owl species on display. Yes. The one in the Pretoria has got all of them because it's got the entire Austin Roberts collection. That's right, yes. I remember that. But even that one was small in comparison yes. to what I saw in the well, park. Well, the male and the female, um, the, the male is much smaller than the female. Um, they weigh up to about 1.8 typically. But like I said, it's once again, you know, which one you get and which one you get to weigh. Um, but the female can go up to three kilograms maximum, it's biggest. Because she's the huntress? 
some some suspect it's because she has to lay the eggs, right. okay. <laughs> but I, I'm not I'm not hundred percent sure. All right, now that was just a curious thought yeah. of mine because I can yeah. think of and, and and reason about owls for days on end. It's just one of those fascinations that I have. I'm sure other people have it about any other species. Okay, but if we can get back to the business part, because um, okay. that 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 it's, it's that, shop talk. Yeah, it's shop talk. <laughs> um, you said. Um, to run an NPO in, in South Africa today in the economic climate that we are in, it's tough. It is tough, yes. We usually focus on a lot of startup companies, so which means they have a product to sell. They, they're building up their own clientele, so they're blow, building up their own demand for their own supply. You already have the demand because owls are besieged. Um, you're, you're willing to serve our, uh, us as taxpayers in, 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 in looking after our species because of that vital part is missing in the ecology mm. cycle um we're going to have a rat problem for example absolutely yes now um there are uh funders such as the mazda wildlife fund if i if they still exist as well as the department of environmental affairs yes are they possible fa- uh, benefactors have you tried we always say that there are what we call sexy animals. So, you know, your leopards, um, your um, wild dogs, rhinos, they get attention. Very few worry about a small little bird, Mm. you know. Um, They, I think the tendency is to start worrying when it's too late, when a species become endangered, you know, when when there's real trouble, like, um, you know, when we're facing this extinction, that's when they start. And although, um, obviously, owls need protection, they're not, except for two species, uh, they, they're still relatively common, you know. Which two species are on the endangered list? The pulse fishing owl and oh, the yeah. grass owl. And the grass owl? Yes. Yeah. It looks so similar to the barn owl. It does look similar. It's just a little bit bigger and the coloration is a little bit different. Yes. Oh, okay. I didn't know there were two of them. I knew about the pals fishing owl, mm. but I didn't know about no, the, the grass, grass owl. No, the grass owl, they say there's about only a thousand left. Goodness gracious. Yeah. All right. So, owls are not too, are not sexy enough for the wildlife fund yet. And But um, have you had any state support? No, which nothing. my tax money goes to nothing, no. nothing. That bothers. Like me. I said, even the lotto, um, the lotto, which which is where your funding usually would come from, decided there is no more um, funds to, is not allocated to animal charities. Okay, so you and and Brendan had to do something, and you came up with this idea of the Mustang win a Mustang competition. Yeah, and that's why we often called crazy. <laughs> really? Okay, because that look because um, and we'll get to the social media now. I know yes. we're running out of time, but. Um, uh, if we can look at the Mustang uh, project, because I followed it on, on, on your social media channel, yes. your, your Facebook page, and I'm sure you have a Twitter one. Twitter, well. Instagram, yeah. yes. Um, the idea was that if you, was it to, to buy like a token or something that you could stand a, stand a chance to win a Ford Mustang? Um, and that money would go directly to the conservation of owls at the rescue center, or what was the idea and the process yeah, of that? Th- that was that was exactly. It. it was basically an incentive for people to donate. If you had to go around asking people to donate two hundred rand to you, you know, maybe one percent of people would would be kind enough to do that. But if you give them an incentive and say, okay, well, for every 200 rand that you donate, you get a ticket into a draw to win a Ford Mustang. And and one person is definitely at the end of this period going to drive away in a Ford Mustang. Um, 
then people have got that incentive, you know, that uh, I'm not I'm not just giving this money away. I can get something back. Mm. And unfortunately, you know, that's just that's just how people work. The yeah, the psychology of people is yeah. that they they want something for themselves as well. So um, and it it worked it worked because people felt good about giving the two hundred rand, but they also knew that maybe this is my big chance to drive that you know fancy car that I would never ever be able to afford. But so someone it was a win win situation. Someone donated the car, right? No. How did that work? No, we bought the car. You bought it. Okay. So what we we did our maths and we worked out to sell enough tickets um, our, our aim was to sell 7,000 tickets which would half of that money would pay for the car and the other half would then go to the, the charity to do what we do well, okay. the organization to do what we do um, we didn't quite make target but we made enough so that we could pay the car we paid full for the car and made enough to to keep our center running every time for three months after the after the draw so how many t- tickets did you sell the first one we sold six thousand three hundred and something. Wow, that's very close to target. It was, it was, and I think the most um, tickets sold in the last day. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, it was intense. That's it, it really works. was intense. Um, the second time we sold a little bit less, but still, like I said, I oh, mean, so it was a, enough to to make it definitely worthwhile. This didn't happen so only once. You did it twice. We did it twice. Wow. Okay. Yes. And this was the idea that you and Brennan came up, saying that rather expecting prizes, you buy the prizes and then make it possible for the public to win. No, exactly. I mean, if you if you expect prizes and you ask then, um, and they say no, then you're never gonna you know achieve anything. So we just we've we've always had the philosophy. We'll do it ourselves then. You know, we'll find a way around our obstacles and, and we'll get it done somehow. So so you're kind of used to door slapping clothes if you need assistance. I mean, there's not a great amount of um, Samaritans out there or am I… Well, like I mentioned earlier, they are. They, they are. are. Um, but usually the people, and this is ironic, the people that are most willing to help are the ones that really can't afford it. You okay. know, so we've seen people give away their last… You know, hundred bucks out of their account. Wow. Um, to to help, whereas corporates would, you know, yeah, they rather turn the other way. It's okay. Yeah, it's well. That's where awareness is one of the key parts of of a solution. Hence, this podcast and any other yes. media you've done. You've been on television. You, um, you've been on radio. Yes. Um, now this is your first podcast interview, but you also have a social media channel. How do you and Brennan approach using social media to create awareness of um, the rescue center? Well, obviously, the the most important thing is to get the message across. Whatever important message is out there um, that we need to get across, social media is great for that. You know, it's it's really been brilliant for an organization like ourselves to get to to the people, like you said earlier, the people on the ground. You know, um, everybody that's out there. But we do approach it in a very um, interactive, casual manner. You know, we want to get people to get to know us as people as well through our social media platform. Form, um, to understand what we do and to understand why we do it. Well, I followed the Mustang um, project on, on social media. That's how I knew about it. Um, I got to knew, know about the Rescue Center through your social media channel. No other yes. way. That was the way. Yes. Um, I also took note of your plastic Owl House project through social media. Okay. But if I can recall, you also post the 
progress that specific injured owls are um, have, have reached after receiving treatment. Yes. So you kind of keep the public in, in informed about how the pearlies are doing. That's a word you used, pearlies <laughs> for pearl-spotted owls. Yes. Um, how the barn owls are doing. So you're yes. kind of including the entire world in this digital owl community. That's right, yes. Although that's just a small percentage of what we actually do, but we do try and keep people informed about what it is about, you know, because you can only support something if you know exactly what we do. And that's why... Um, that's why we allow people to come in at night and come and walk on the sanctuary and see what it is all about, you know, see how it all comes together. Now, we are really running out of time, believe it or not. And we thought an hour was going to be yeah, long. I thought the hour is ridiculous, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, let's, let's talk about the future for the Owl Center because it's a great amount of potential for research, all right? Yes. The projects are worthwhile supporting. Yes. Um, the creation of awareness as our goal at Jensgesind. What is, well, so hence we would like to create awareness. What is the future for the Owl Rescue Center? If someone goes onto your Facebook page and likes it, what can I expect to see on it about the work you are doing? Any projects being planned? Well, the plastic project is obviously um, taking priority at the moment. Um, like I explained earlier to you that our our passion extends to environmental conservation as well so it's incorporating all of that because i believe that you can't um, protect a species without protecting the environment in which it lives so um yeah i mean we we just we just keep growing we just keep wherever we can make a difference wherever we can do more to save owls to protect them to create awareness you know we're going to do it so and if the public would like to um Hook in, as, yes. you, as, as they say, hook in with, with arms against the besieging of owls. Um, how can they get in contact with you and how can they help? I think the easiest way to get into contact is um, all our information is on our website. So um, to visit our website would be the first. You, there's a lot to read about what we do there as well. So we can just Google Owl Rescue Center. If you Google, we'll definitely come up. Okay. Um, yeah, and then we're on all the social media platforms. And then we have a membership program as well if people want to become members. Um, the membership involves, once again, we wanted to involve people more in, in what we do to see what we and And especially families. I always target families because I'm very worried about the new generation of kids. And I want them to, you know, I want to know that later on, there's going to be there's going to be people that that's going to carry on with the work that we do so if you join up as a member you can stay over at the lodge it's it's a very rustic lodge i don't expect too much but you can you can stay over and you can watch the owls at night you can see the releases you can do all that stuff well, so. i'm looking forward to doing that tonight. <laughs> so i've been i've been looking forward to friday night for uh, since i can remember when we got when we are allowed to to book this yes um because yeah, all right. I've had the opportunity to to study owls in the wild um, in places like Kruger Park, but not as close to home as I have here, um, mm. just on the other side of the Hartkespoort Dam. You're definitely going to be surprised tonight. I hope so, um, because I think I'm going to be like a fat kid in a candy store. <laughs> but believe it or not, that isn't uh, that. That's the end of of of, of my uh, interview with you. Okay. And we thought an hour, an hour is going to be like uh, forever, but it it goes quite by quickly because we're interested um, in this thing. And um, uh, well, I can state it honestly that that 
if this rescue center did not exist, I don't know where our owl species would be. So to support you, and I'm, I direct it up the list now as a hearty, so the owl rescue center by Harvestperdam, benodig ons help, ons ondersteuning, en hopelijk ons besoekers ook. So, ons wil graag hier vir Danel Marri, en vir Brennan in absentia ook sê, baie dankie, en ons hoop ons kom weer in die, in die toekomst weer met julle gesels. Thank you so much, appreciate it. Jy het geluister na Shoptop, aangebied dier Emil Boetseer, en vervaardig dier Insgesind Media. Onthou om aan te teken met ons klankleerkanaal op Castbox, Stitcher of iTunes, hierdie episode en andere soort beskikbaar op ons webtuiste www.1gesind.com.